Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Sarah Collins, Assistant Editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Helen Bernard, Associate Director at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, and Sam Royston, Director of Policy and Research at Marie Curie, a charity which supports people with terminal illnesses. Today, we will discuss a scandal that cuts the heart of our fundamental values as a society. Tens of thousands of working age people with terminal illnesses are dying in poverty as our social security safety net fails to catch them in the final years of life. And as Helen argued in a column for the Prospect website last week, a popular and affordable policy intervention could dramatically help this group, giving them early access to the state pension. So, Helen, first of all, I just wanted to ask you, what made you decide to write this piece? Why did this particular policy proposal inspire you? So I think the thing that really struck me was that so many of the problems we're facing as a nation are incredibly complicated. They don't have particularly obvious solutions. They involve really hard trade-offs. So, you know, if you think about how do we get the NHS to be sustainable in its current form, how do you meet the funding of an ageing society, how do we get more inactive people back into the labour market, how do we get to a post-Brexit prosperous economy, all these things, there's just, there's no easy answer. And then when you read this research, you think, you know what, we found something which is actually really straightforward. You know, it's a group of people where you've got a very, very clear need. There's no kind of moral hazard. You've got three quarters of the public in favour of this. And it's very affordable. So, you know, we know that public finances are very strained. There are big bun fights happening and will be happening in the lead up to the next budget in March. But this is, in public spending terms, really a very affordable policy. And it just feels to me like it's it should be a new break, a no-brainer. It should be something that we just say on a moral basis, let's just do it and do it now. And Sam, would you mind telling us a little bit about the research that you've done at Marie Curie? As a starting point, I mean, day after day, Marie Curie nurses are going into people's homes to support them towards the end of their lives. And they're seeing people struggling to turn the heating on, struggling to put decent food on the table. But instead of spending that crucial, precious final phase of their lives thinking about and focusing on those things that really matter 
people are having to spend their time worrying about money and it's just not right. And this research from the University of Loughborough on behalf of Marie Curie will first show us 90,000 people each year die while living in poverty, but particularly shows that there is a particularly high risk of falling into poverty at the end of life if you're unlucky enough to become terminally ill while still of working age. And it's perhaps the most shocking thing to me is I'd expect perhaps that there would be some people who would face poverty at the end of life. But when it comes to people of working age, not only are you no less likely to face poverty when you are terminally ill, you're more likely, not even a little bit more likely, a lot more likely to face poverty if you're in the final year of your life than amongst the wider working age population. Terminal illness in and of itself is pushing people into poverty. And I just can't, I just can't process it. I can't process how as a society, we could think that it's okay, not just for us not to be lifting people out of poverty and allowing people to focus on other things in that final phase of their life, but the way in which we've structured our social safety net means that we are actually pushing people into poverty at a time when they need the support the most. And as Helen says, there is a relatively simple intervention here which would, which would help to make a massive difference to those people unlucky enough to become terminally ill in working age, and that's extension of the state pension. We know the state pension has been, for more than 100 years, the most substantial measure that we have as a society in order to protect people from poverty through retirement. Um, and extension of the state pension to people living with terminal illness in working age, we know, would lift thousands of dying people out of poverty each year for one thousandth of the cost of the overall state pension bill. Now, that seems to me like a step worth taking. And Helen or Sam, could you explain to me where we're at now? So what kind of social security support do people receive when they're diagnosed with a terminal illness? Well, typically, if you're of working age and you're unlucky enough to become terminally ill, you'd be reliant on the working age benefit system. Now, there are some measures which mean that you can get expedited access to the benefit system called the special rules for terminal illness. So if you have a diagnosis that says that it might be reasonably expected or a clinician wouldn't be surprised if you died in, well, it was the coming six months, actually as a result of campaigning from Marie Curie and others, that's now a year, if it's reasonably expected you're going to die in the in the coming year, then you get expedited access to the benefit system. But you'd still be reliant on the same working age benefit system as other people of 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 working age. So typically, if you're on a low income, typically reliant on universal credit. And what we're saying is that actually, where if you've paid into the state pension, you should be entitled to receive your state pension as well as any benefit entitlements that, that you'd be entitled to, so that effectively you'd receive the same level of support as somebody in the equivalent position who is over state pension age. And actually, prompted by Helen, just this morning I was doing the calculations as to what the difference would be. And I reckon that if you are a single 
person on a low income living with a terminal illness, you'd typically have receive about £250 a week after housing costs if you're in working age and about £345 a week after housing costs if you're of overstate pension age. So we're talking about a difference of about £95 a week that we'd be asking for people on a low income living with terminal illness in working age to be get as, to be getting in addition to what they're receiving at the moment. I think it's probably worth saying that there is a bigger discussion to have about the adequacy of working age benefits. Yeah. And there are other groups who are also facing very severe hardships. So some of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation research in the last few months found about 7 million households going without essentials. We've seen recently Resolution Foundation looked at food insecurity and found that that has tripled over just a couple of years. So about a quarter of people on benefits are facing severe food insecurity. So they're regularly running out of food or having to go for several days in a month without eating properly. So there are other groups you could look at, you know, if you have a small baby, if you're disabled, if you have various other, if you're a carer, it is also wrong that you're stuck in this position. I think, though, there's a couple of differences, though, about this. I think one is that... There is a very specific rationale for giving this group access to the pension bit, which is that the purpose of that bit of the system is to give people security in the last period of their lives. And so there is a, I suppose there is an equity argument that says if you are in that awful position that you're suddenly told, well, the end of your life is pretty soon, you shouldn't miss out on this, the support you can get. I think the other thing is is that this group are we know they're going to face higher costs so a lot of the things that people will be dying from eventually are illnesses which will require you know higher laundry costs where if you can't put your heating on you'll be in much more pain than you need to be and I think there is also one thing that really struck me talking to some of the team at Marie Curie the extent to which people who are dying worry about their families what's going to happen to their families once they're gone and that is from what people said you know it that is as much of a concern often as what's happening to them why should you have to die with the knowledge that your partner is going to face bankruptcy because of the costs that came with you dying and to know that the person you love most in the world is going to face appalling grief and could lose their house, could you know be in debt that they're never going to pay off. There just seems to be this, I guess, an unusual cruelty in putting this group through that experience, and it's unnecessary. And maybe I'm more naive than most of the general public, but it was actually a real shock to me, Helen, to read your article. And I do wonder if it is a shock to a lot of people that people are being left in this position. Sam, would you be able to outline maybe some of the stories that are in the report? There was, you know, cases where people are kind of losing losing their home. Um, in some cases, as Helen alluded to, facing bankruptcy as a result of terminal illness and kind of more day to day, just people struggling, people talking about struggling to afford kind of day to day costs of living, having to worry instead of focusing on spending time with their family, instead of focusing on the things that really matter to you, making the most of the time that you have left, those final months of your life, having to worry instead about finances, having to worry day to day about kind of making sure you're claiming every single thing that you're entitled entitled to, having to make the really tough spending choices, which are both 
you know, mean that you're not necessarily getting the things that you need, not make, perhaps not able to kind of heat your home in the way that you, you would like to, but also just putting a lot of pressure on you to spend all of that thinking time, all of that time when you should be concentrating on other things, the things that really matter, having to focus on those things instead. And those are the things that kind of really stick with me. It's that amount of kind of just thought space that's put on people's lives at a time when they most of all really need the time to focus on those things that really matter, making the most of their relationships and the time that they have left. And that was, I mean, there were two things that stuck with me out of some of the things that I heard. One was the man who talked about that moment when you're in front of the doctor and you're getting that news, which, you know, we can all imagine is just, you know, probably the worst thing you could go through in many ways. And the doctor saying to, I think it was him and his wife, my advice to you is just go and try and enjoy these last few months together. And actually being told that with the best intentions by the doctor made him feel even worse because he knew that's not what was going to happen. They were going to walk out and they wouldn't spend that time worrying about money. And actually one person who said the worry, the financial insecurity was as bad emotionally as the fact they were dying. And, that the, you know, that is just, it's, you know, it's heart-stopping, isn't it, to imagine that. And Helen, you mentioned in your piece that the policy is popular. Yeah, so Marie Curie have been doing polling, looking at what does the British public think about this, and it's about 75% of adults support giving early access to the state pension to this group. They've got, it may have gone up now, but the last that, that I heard, 160,000 people have signed the petition. Now, those are, in public policy terms, it's really unusual to get that level of support for anything, to be honest. So I think it shows that, I mean, I think, as you, as you said, it probably has never occurred to most people in the country that something like this doesn't already happen. Most people probably assume when you get this, you get access to as good a package of support as possible. And I think probably most people find it pretty shocking to find that we are currently just basically standing by and letting this happen to people. And Sam, how much would it cost to give early access to the pension for this group? Well, this research from Loughborough University shows they had cost a little over £100 million a year. About £114 million, I think, this extension. And to put that in context, it's 0.1% of the overall state pension bill. And um, remember, this is it's crucially about those kind of tens of thousands of people who die in poverty each year, particularly those of working age, of course. But actually, this is also about every one of us. It's about each of us having the assurance to know that were we unfortunate enough to go to the doctor tomorrow and be told we're terminally ill, that we've got a limited amount of time left to live, that that state pension that we're all paying into effectively for our national insurance contributions, that, that that's there. That that's there as a safety net in order to support each and every one of us. And another question for both of you is, how long term has this problem been? Is this a new situation or is this something that have people in this position always been facing this? I know with the cost of living crisis, it's even more dramatically exacerbated. But how long term has it been as an issue? So I would say, so the, I think the long termness of it is comes from the fact that the working age benefit system has been eroded in particularly the last decade or so 
So when you look back over the last decade, there have been a series of cuts, of freezes, of restrictions put on it. And what that meant was that as inflation hit a 40-year high, the basic rate of benefits hit a 40-year low. Now, obviously, people in this this situation do get a, a group of different benefits. But overall, that working age system has been really kind of undermined. And what we've seen, actually, is one of the reasons I think this is so stark is because the gap between the support system you access if you are over pension age and the support system you access if you're under pension age has been widening. So the pension system has been largely protected from all of the austerity cost saving. So it's all fallen on the working age benefit system, which means it's falling on people like this and other groups. There's part of me that wants to say, actually, this is a really long-term problem that this relates to a problem of how as a society we engage with issues of terminal illness and I think that it's always been quite a taboo topic and I think as partly as a result in policy terms we've never really engaged with end-of-life care in the way that we should have done. We had a big campaign start of last year about getting a legal requirement for palliative care to be commissioned by health services. Until now, so ever since the start of the NHS, it's not been a legal requirement for palliative care to be commissioned in every part of England. It was, you know, so there were there have been provisions through the NHS Act for clinical commissioning groups and so forth, and now ICSs to commission a whole host of different services, but palliative care has been missing. And I think a really big part of that is that actually it's quite a taboo topic. And as a result, it's not an easy one for politicians to engage with and say, actually, we're going to focus on this and get it changed because by and large, people don't like thinking about it. But the trouble is we need to surface this. We need to focus on it because for the sake of people who do do become terminally ill and in truth, that's each and every one of us, effectively, at some point in our lives. We're going, to, we're going to face the final phase of our life. And if we don't have policies that support us properly through it, then we won't be properly supported in that in, at a time that really matters. But there is also part of me that thinks, uh, as Helen says, there has been an erosion of the working age benefit system, which has made this a pr- particularly kind of critical issue today. There's also another factor, of course, which makes it a particularly critical issue today, which is the rising state pension age. And as the state pension age rises, more and more people are going to be put into the position where sadly, they die before they reach state pension age or, and actually we need to make, it makes it all the more important that actually properly supporting people through their early mid-60s. That's really interesting and, and awful, but th- there's a cultural issue as well about not wanting to look at something because it, it frightens us and that's leaving a group really being left in a terrible situation. I guess my question to both Helen and Sam is, what do you see happening next? Do you see this policy at any point becoming something that's implemented by the government? So I would like to think that actually this is something they could do at the next budget. So we know we've got a budget coming in March. It's not going to be a big spending budget by and large. They're going to be kind of holding whatever firepower they've got probably for the autumn one in the run up to the next election. But as we've been saying, this isn't a big spending policy. 
I think that this is, and you can imagine, can't you, that if you have a party in government that wants to demonstrate they get the cost of living crisis, they want to demonstrate their compassionate credentials, they're under fire under on lots of fronts. If I was their political advisers, I would be saying, this is a great idea, you know, this will give you a really good political line to be able to defend and a good story. I, th- I think we should see it on every manifesto. I think next election, probably next year, there's no reason we shouldn't see every single manifesto say we are going to take this step. It's so rare, isn't it, Helen, to be able to do anything in the benefit system for £100 million, frankly. I mean, anything kind of big. And this just feels so so totemic. I mean, such a big change to be able to say, actually, if you become terminally ill in working aid as a state pension, be able to step in there and support you. To be able to do that for £100 million, it just... I mean, I find that absolutely astonishing and frankly astonishing when you look at those numbers that it hasn't happened already. I mean, the other thing that I think is interesting about this is you've also, because the other challenge you often get, so there's challenges around public support, there's challenges around cost. The other challenge you often get that we've seen a lot with the energy crisis is do you have a mechanism to identify the people? So we've seen with the energy crisis, the state really struggling to work out how do we get money to the people who really need it. Whereas in this case, actually, we've already got a mechanism in place because the government has already put this fast access to existing benefits. So you can say, actually, this is implementable within the current system. This does not require you to do lots of back office stuff to find people. It just requires you to take the people you've already found and give them access to a different bit of the system. Well, thank you so much to both Helen and Sam for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of our new issue of Prospect magazine, which hits the newsstands today. The issue features writing from Bill McKibben, Jonathan Powell, Ed Miliband, Sheila Hancock and many, many more. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Alice Goodman, Mike Breeley and Alice Garnett. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Goodbye and see you next time.